Good morning. Today is Sunday, the third day of September, 2017. Back in the year 1900, three men mysteriously disappeared from an isolated island, and to this day, what became of the men is still unknown. Today I will tell you the mystery of the Eileen Moore Lighthouse on the 134th episode of Sunday Morning Coffee with Jeff. It's Sunday, it's time for coffee, and I am your host and storyteller, Jeff Kelly. I hope everybody is doing well out there. Leaves. There are leaves falling in my backyard. Yes, folks, winter is approaching. But did you ever think that your hatred of the cold might be all in your head? Anyway, today's story was about 75% written when I came across a paper by an historian named Mike Dash called The Vanishing Lighthouse Men of Aline Moore. In it, I found some great, well-researched information. So much so that I rewrote my story using a lot, almost too much of, what I read in Mike's paper. I'll have a link to it on the show notes. It's 38 pages long, but well worth the read, and I I used so much of it for today's story that I thought I'd give it a special shout-out. I say that because much of what you find on the internet about this event is just wrong. It's one of those stories that have been embellished or made more mysterious as time went on. On one YouTube video from a good web series called Bedtime Stories... The narrator starts out by saying, The Flannan Isles Lighthouse Mystery. In December 1900, three lighthouse keepers stationed on an isolated group of islands in the North Atlantic vanished without a trace. Was their disappearance the result of a freak accident? Or was there something more sinister at work? Now this is actually a pretty good video on the subject, but why did the author feel the need to use the word sinister in his description? Other stories that I've read really go above and beyond in making the reader get the idea that something mysterious, something unexplainable, perhaps magical, happened to the missing men. I don't think the story needs that. Now, before I get started, I want to give a special shout-out to Pat, who sent me an email after my last episode. He told me that he had just left Skagway, Alaska, where a lot of my last episode's story took place, and saw a local production of Days of 98, The Life and Times of Soapy Smith and His Skagway Antics. As he pointed out, that was quite a coincidence. But thanks, Pat, for the email. And you know, I'd love to get emails from listeners telling me what they thought of my most recent episode. So if you want, you can email me at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com. Anyway, like I said, it's cooling off here in Chicago, so much so that I actually put on a flannel shirt when I woke up this morning. But I've got my hot cup of coffee, and I'm ready to tell a story of three missing men. This podcast is part of the PsyCon Network. 
You can support this podcast and others like it by becoming a subscriber at patreon.com forward slash Psycon. That's C-S-I-C-O-N. A link can be found on the Coffee with Jeff website. Just a dollar or two is all it takes to keep these podcasts going. Thank you for your support. Don't see them dead because of him. He deserves to die. Sit down, sit down. All that can wait. (coughs) Gentlemen, I've got news for you. This lighthouse is under attack, and by morning we might all be dead. (laughs) Anyone interested? No one. But no one is to leave this lighthouse for any reason. Is that clear? No, it's not clear. Mysterious mumbo-jumbo. Just what is this threat that's supposed to be lurking outside? You've seen it, then. The beast back. It'll happen again. Superstitious idiot. If we're expected to take notice of some fisherman's tale... Silence! You will do as the doctor instructs or I will cut out your heart. In September of 1977 there was a Doctor Who serial called The Horror of Fang Rock. It is about a lighthouse on a rocky island that gets invaded by aliens. And in the end, and this is a spoiler, everyone is dead except for the Doctor, played by Tom Baker, and his companion Leela, played by Louise Jameson. As the Doctor walks away at the end of the episode, he quotes a Wilford Wilson Gibson poem called Flannan's Isle. The poem, which is longish and I won't read here, tells a slightly fictional story of a real event that happened in December of 1900. That's when the three keepers of the lighthouse were found missing, and to this day they have never been found. The story of the Flannan Isles lighthouse mystery was the inspiration for the Doctor Who episode. And of course, even though there's a reasonable explanation of what might have happened, because no bodies were ever found, there are many who still believe that something more sinister was at work. Lighthouses go all the way back to ancient Egypt. The Lighthouse of Alexandria was built around 280 BC and is considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. For many centuries, it was one of the tallest man-made structures in the world. The lighthouse stood on the island of Pharos in the harbor of Alexandria and was said to have been more than 350 feet high or 110 meters. The lighthouse is not too much different from what we think of lighthouses today. If there's a small island or dangerous coastline or reef that poses a danger to ships and boats at night, Construction of large towers with light beacons on top are constructed to warn of potential danger. Other uses for lighthouses are for navigational purposes. And it wasn't just at night that these signal towers needed to operate. They were useful when the fog moved in or when there was bad weather at all times of day, any time a warning was needed for ships passing by. Many of these towers are built on isolated, lonely places, miles out in the water, and in the early days, before radio communication, there was no way for the men working in these lighthouses to communicate with civilization. Once the boat that brought you there pulled away from the dock, you were alone, and you had no idea what was going on in the rest of the world. And the rest of the world, including your family and friends, had no idea what was going on with you. A lighthouse keeper wasn't on his own, however. He was part of a team. 
A lighthouse required at least two people. I mean, it has to function 24 hours a day, and one person has to sleep. Yet there was always a danger in having just two people. People living together in tight spaces often get on each other's nerves. Personality conflicts over time could turn a simple argument or irritation into an ugly fight. If you've ever shared an apartment with a friend, you'll, you know what I mean. Therefore, regulations required a three-man crew. But since each man needed a break now and again, there was a fourth man who would rotate in as relief for the others, giving each man a chance for a break on the mainland. Flannan Isles are a small seven-island group in the Outer Hebrides of Scotland, approximately 20 miles west of the Isle of Lewis. They take their name from St. Flannans, a 7th century Irish preacher and abbot. Due to the danger these islands posed to passing ships, the Northern Lighthouse Board constructed a lighthouse near the highest point on Aline Moor between 1895 and 1899, and it was first lit on December 7th of 1899. No one lived on Flannan's Isle, as they were dangerous and they were thought to be haunted by people of the area. In December of 1990, about one year after the tower was finished, it was staffed by a 43-year-old James Ducat, a married man with four children, who had been on Aline Moore as the lighthouse was being constructed. He would be the principal keeper. The second assistant was a married 28-year-old Thomas Marshall, and the third man was an occasional keeper, 40-year-old Donald MacArthur. MacArthur was an old soldier who was filling in for the first assistant keeper, William Ross, who was out on sick leave. The fourth relief man was Joseph Moore. He was scheduled to relieve one of the men on the 20th day of December. James Duckett had a problem with being stationed on Aline Moore. He didn't think it was the most suitable place for a man with a young family. His worry was understandable as this isolated rocky island was exposed to the power of the numerous North Atlantic gales. But Robert Muirhead, superintendent of the Commissioners of Northern Lights, wanted a reliable and experienced crew to man the new station, and with Duckett's 12 years experience, he insisted he be the principal keeper. Now the island of Aline Moore is egg-shaped. It is basically a series of cliffs that rise out of the ocean about 150 feet. On top of that, there's a steep grassy bank sloping from south to north. The land rises to about 200 feet at its highest point. It was on this point that the lighthouse was built. The structure is about 75 feet high. It wasn't an easy life for the three men. Not only were they the keepers of the lighthouse, but they were also required to be farmers, growing their own fruits and vegetables, raising and slaughtering sheep and poultry, and they had to do some fishing. And without any communication to the mainland, they were pretty much on their own. But for almost a year, the lighthouse was fully operational and all seemed well. But then on December 15, 1900, the American steamer Archtor passed by the lighthouse around midnight. Captain Hallman noticed that the lighthouse was not in operation, something that was very unusual. When he docked, he reported the problem to the Northern Lighthouse Board using a wireless, but for some unknown reason, the message was not passed on to those in charge. What makes the stranger is the island was monitored by telescope from the nearby Lewis Islands, 
but they failed to report anything wrong. This might be explained by a thick fog that had been in the area that week. In fact, the weather was so bad the following week that the relief boat, the Hesperus, which was bringing supplies as well as relief lighthouse keeper Joseph Moore, had to wait almost a week. When the Hepperus arrived on the day after Christmas, or what is known as Boxing Day, they could see something was wrong. The relief flag that should have been up, blowing in the wind, wasn't there. None of the usual provisional boxes had been left out on the landing stage for restocking, and no one was waiting to welcome them on the tiny dock. They shot flares into the air, and still no one responded. The captain of the Hepperus, James Harvey, gave a few blasts of his whistle. Again, no response. The relief keeper, Joseph Moore, was sent out on a small boat to check on things. Now, many things have been written about Moore and what he did, saw, and said as he investigated. Much of this, from what I can tell by my research, seems like a lot of assumptions. One account I read had him running up the stairs, screaming the men's name in panic. Why don't we do this? Why don't we let Joseph tell us what had happened? He would later write this in his report. Captain Harvey demanded it prudent to lower a boat and land a man if it was possible. I was the first to land, leaving Mr. McCormick, the buoy master, and the men in the boat till I could return. I went up to the lighthouse, and on coming to the entrance gate, I found it closed. I made for the entrance door leading to the kitchen and the storeroom and found it also closed, and the door inside that. But the kitchen door itself was open. On entering, I looked at the fireplace and saw that the fire had not been lighted for some days. I entered the rooms in succession and found the beds empty, just as they had left them in the early morning. I did not take time to search further, for I naturally knew that something serious had occurred. I darted outside and made for the landing. I informed Mr. McCormick that the place was deserted. He with some men came up to make sure, but unfortunately the first impressions were only too true. Mr. McCormick and myself proceeded to the light room, where everything was in proper order. The lamp was clean, the foundation full, blinds on the windows, etc. Now, as often reported, the search revealed that one set of the three oilskin coats were still hanging, which would appear that two men had left with their coats and one man had left his behind. That was the coat of Donald MacArthur. This is sort of true, but not exactly accurate. According to the detailed research by Mike Dash, a UK historian, independent researcher, and author who has done extensive work on the disappearance, MacArthur didn't own an oilskin coat, but his wearing coat was still in the lighthouse. A slight distinction, I know. Not only was this odd because the recent weather would have required protective outdoor wear, but it's also against the rules, as regulations require that at least one man remain in the lighthouse at all times. The best guess was MacArthur left in a rush. Something was so urgent that he couldn't even take the time to dress properly. The only other oddity was an overturned chair in the kitchen. Now I need to stop here and explain something. If you go and do your own research on this, you might find accounts of an uneaten meal laid out on the table, giving the appearance that the keepers had suddenly rushed out the door. I think people like to add this to give a greater air of mystery, 
to the story, but it's not true. This comes from the fictional poem I mentioned earlier. Joseph Moore's own recorded observations of the scene stated that the kitchen utensils were all very clean, which is a sign that it must be after dinner sometime they left. Captain Harvey sent a telegram to the Northern Lighthouse Board dated 26 December 1900 stating, A dreadful accident happened at the Flannans. The three keepers, Duncan, Marshall, and the Occasional, have disappeared from the island. The clocks were stopped and other signs indicate that the accident must have happened about a week ago. Poor fellows, they must have been blown over the cliff or drowned trying to secure a crane. While he was sending this message, the rest of the men scoured every inch of the island looking for clues. They saw a box at 33 meters above sea level that had been broken and its contents strewed about. Iron railings were bent over, the iron railway by the path was wrenched out of the concrete, and a rock weighing more than a ton had been displaced above that. On top of the cliff, at more than 60 meters above sea level, turf had been ripped away as far as 10 meters from the cliff's edge. Much of this could be attributed to the recent storms that had moved through. And that was verified by the last log the missing keepers made at about 9 a.m. on the 15th of December, which made it clear that all of the damage had been made before their disappearance. Robert Muirhead, the man who had hired all three men and knew them personally, arrived a few days later to do his own investigation. His report basically describes the damage that I just spoke of, but at the end he says this, A life buoy fastened to the railing along the path to be used in case of emergency, had disappeared. And I thought at first it had been removed for the purpose of being used, but on examining the ropes by which it was fastened, I found that they had not been touched, as a piece of canvas was adhering to the ropes. It was evidence that the force of the sea pouring through the railings had, even at this great height, torn the life buoy off the ropes. Now, for those who talk of this mystery who aim to make it sound a little more mysterious than it probably was, there is talk of strange log entries, such as, on the 12th day of December, Thomas Marshall, the second assistant, wrote of severe winds, the likes of which I had never seen in 20 years. He also said he noticed that James Duckett, the principal keeper, had been very quiet, and the third assistant, William MacArthur, had been crying. The next day it said the men had been praying as the storm raged on, and on the 15th, the final entry in the log said, Storm ended, sea calm. God is over all. What could he have meant by God is over all? Your guess is as good as mine. But first of all, are these even real? These logs are for official record keeping of the lighthouse operations. They're not a diary. They're not a place for a person to write their personal feelings and such. And then we look at the fact that they should have felt completely safe in a newly constructed lighthouse, which makes the idea of the men crying and praying highly suspicious, especially when there was no reported storms in the area on the 12th, 13th, or 14th of December. In fact, the weather was calm and the storms that were to batter the island didn't come till after that. And when you take into account that William MacArthur was a seasoned mariner, who was also known on the Scottish mainlands to be a tough brawler, the idea of him crying during a storm just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. According to UK historian Mike Dash, 
just like the story of the half-eaten meal, this was probably a hoax or something made up from a 1920s pulp magazine. But the bottom line is, no bodies were ever recovered. And that leaves many to suspect that something mysterious or sinister happened. So what happened to the men? Well, you can search the internet and find all types of theories like maybe they were the victim of alien abductions or a mysterious vortex took them to another dimension. Maybe it was a case of madness and murder with the one survivor escaping to another part of the world or throwing himself over the cliff for what he had done. How about a giant sea serpent or seabird? Maybe the men were taken away or eaten. Foreign spies could have abducted them, and the islands were thought to be haunted. Maybe ghosts are the answer. Let's try an explanation that makes more sense. John Love, who has done extensive research on this subject, has a book called A Natural History of Lighthouses. His explanation and that of Mike Dash are fairly similar, and using those two and a few thoughts of my own, here is what just might have happened. Previously to this event, Thomas Marshall had been fined five shillings after equipment had washed away during a storm, and he was labeled negligent for the mishap. Maybe that was on his mind during this storm as he and James Duckett went out with their coats and boots on, maybe during a break in the weather, to make sure the gear, especially the landing ropes, were secure. Donald MacArthur stayed behind because it was against the rules for all men to leave at the same time, and maybe somebody had to clean up after dinner. While Marshall and Duckett were checking on the ropes, a huge unexpected wave washed one of the men off the cliff and into the ocean. Now, for those who doubt that a wave could be this huge over 110 feet... Walter Albert, who served as a principal keeper at this lighthouse from 1953 to 1957, said that even the lighthouse 300 feet up can be splashed with spray. The man who survived the wave ran back to the lighthouse, screaming for help. MacArthur, in a panic, bumps over his chair and runs out into the storm without his coat. After all, his friend may be drowning. It could be that the life buoy, the one that Robert Murhead thought the storm had washed away, was actually used trying to save the missing man. Maybe not. But then a second huge wave came, and now all three men are together in the cold waters of the Atlantic. Off Scotland, Coast Guard Alistair Smith is heading for the Flannan Islands, 14 miles from the nearest land in the wild North Atlantic. In 1900, another ship made this journey. She had come to relieve Flannan's three experienced lighthouse keepers. First mate Joe Moore climbed ashore, but soon came running back in terror. The light was trimmed, the living quarters were tidy, only two sets of oilskins and boots were missing. One chair was overturned in the kitchen, but the island was deserted. People feared isolation had driven the men to madness or suicide. Others spread rumors that one had murdered the others before escaping. Some put it down to supernatural revenge for the destruction of the island's ancient chapel. Has anybody got a match? Thanks. Now I can light an old gold and listen to the sad sack. Even with the version of events that I spoke of today, there are still a few things that are unanswered about the whole event. 
like when Captain Hallman from the Arch Tour reported that the lighthouse wasn't working, why was that message never passed on? And more strange, why were the doors all found shut when Joseph Moore investigated? If MacArthur left in a huge panic and rush, do you think it would have taken time to shut the doors? Maybe, maybe it was just natural for him to slam the door shut as he ran through, who knows? And also, what happened to the bodies? A lot of people thought that they should have eventually washed ashore. But in any case, I can be fairly confident when I say that they weren't abducted by aliens. Now, before I go, I wanted to talk about an idea I had that you might be able to be a part of. Um, I'm thinking about doing an occasional Google Hangout where me and two or three, four people could get together and talk about a subject. It could be a, a person or an, an event such as this. And, and the idea would be for me to invite people who have some sort of a interest in the subject or expertise. The idea would be that we would talk for maybe 45 minutes, an hour. Then I would edit that down into like a half-hour podcast. Now, this won't replace any of the current Coffee with Jeff shows. I'll still do that every other week like I've been doing for a while. But maybe I would post those in those in-between weeks where I don't have a new episode. So right now, I've got it in mind to do a test to see how well it would work. And, And if that comes off well, then I'll post on my website a list of subjects that I think would make for good shows. People who have an interest in being a part of that can get a hold of me. Who knows? Anyway, let's get to the ending credits. Have you ever been to Las Vegas? You probably have. Let me ask you, when you're at the blackjack table and the waitress brings you a complimentary drink, do you give her a little gratuity for her efforts? Of course you do. You're not a cheapskate. You know what? I bet she really appreciates it. Just like us at PsyCon would really appreciate a little something for our efforts. Hey, if you got a few extra dollars you can spare, just go over to PsyCon.fm, that's C-S-I-C-O-N.fm, and look for the Patreon link at the top, and you can become a Patreon and support the show. And a sincere thank you to all of you who already support us. Speaking of PsyCon, why not go over to our website and check out a few of our other shows? You'll find an amazing amount of geek culture. In the latest episode of Moving On, Brecky, Toreg, and Nancy talk about one of my favorite films, The Manchurian Candidate, even if they do think it's overrated. You can find this and other great shows over at PsyCon.fm. If you want to email me, I'm at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com. Feel free to send an email for any reason. I'm also on Twitter. My name on Twitter is coffeewithjeff, all one word. And I have a Coffee with Jeff Facebook page that I'd love you to join. Your story ideas are always welcome, and you can give them to me at any of those places. If you want to support the show, but you don't have the coin to help financially, and believe me, I understand, then just go over to iTunes and leave a review or a few stars. Those really help the show. And remember, links to all the sources I used to write today's story can be found at Psycon's Coffee with Jeff page. I'd like to thank Brecky Thomason for having this podcast on the Psycon Network. It's my wife of 33 years for being my wife of 33 years. 
David Metzger for designing the Coffee with Jeff logo. Kelly Rickard for writing and performing the Coffee with Jeff theme. And to all of you who listen to the show every week, thank you so much. And of course, a special shout out to all those that repost this on Facebook and Twitter. You folks have a special place in my heart. Thanks for listening. I'll be back in two weeks. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. I once knew a man who used to drink his coffee black. He once tried it with some cream. Didn't like it, now he never looks back. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. Met a girl from Beantown. Jeff was always hanging around. She drank tea, but that was okay. She was the dawn of Jeff's new day. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, my coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, my coffee with Jeff. Years go by and life's filled with change. Sometimes your plans get rearranged. He's seen it all and he's weathered it too. So Jeff wants to have some coffee with you. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee. On coffee with Jeff Coffee with Jeff Coffee with Jeff